This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is a super dope online learning community filled with thousands of creative video classes taught by experts and professionals. Even though we can see the light at the end of this lockdown tunnel, we still have a few weeks to go. So why not download a free trial and learn something new in the meantime? Yes, and then maybe it's time that you signed up for a dance course so we can all go clubbing with our friends after this lockdown's over. And you won't avoid going on the dance floor like you usually do. Hold up. Maybe, (laughs) Romy, you need to do a course on how to be a good friend or learn some manners maybe. Anyway, check out our show notes to sign up for a free trial today. Welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. This episode, we're joined by Alicia Rajlal, incredible journalist and culture editor at Refinery29, with previous experience writing for Huffington Post, Yahoo and Daily Mail. Alicia has interviewed so many incredible people from Maitri Ramakrishnan, Zach Efron, Ashwarya Rai, the cast from Sex Education, Philippa So from Hamilton and Al Gore, just to name a few. But what we love most about Alicia's work is how she uses pop culture and lifestyle to speak to bigger issues in the world around us. Definitely. We had such an insightful conversation with Alicia that we actually decided to split this episode into two parts. In part one today, Alicia shares her experience being a woman of colour working in journalism and media. And in part two, which we'll be releasing next week, we dive into the media landscape more broadly, where Alicia helps unpack some of the issues surrounding journalism and technology in today's world, and we reflect on our own media consumption habits. Now let's get into it. Alicia, it's such an honour having you on the podcast today. You've accomplished so much in the journalism industry, particularly in Australia, uh, from being a previous Huffington Post journalist to now being a culture editor at Refinery29 and having interviewed and written about so many amazing people and topics, I'm kind of intimidated now to <laughs> be interviewing you. So thank you so much. Oh my God, that was such a lovely intro. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, really, really excited to be here and yeah, honoured to be part of the podcast. You guys have interviewed some incredible people recently. Yeah, and another incredible person today as well. (laughs) Oh, stop. (laughs) Nah, happy to be here. Thanks. Um, There's a Denzel Washington quote from a little while ago where he says, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. But if you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. And he goes on to talk about how, you know, many media outlets in today's world are more concerned about getting the story first as opposed to getting it right. And the the impacts of constantly being bombarded by information. And I stumbled across that interview again whilst prepping for today. So we thought it'd be really interesting to get your take on some of these issues as mm. uh, a young person working in the field. Um, but before that, we have to start by acknowledging and celebrating all of the amazing work that you're yeah. doing to platform stories that are kind of underrepresented in the media today. Um, tell us a bit about how you got started in journalism. Um, yeah, I guess it's been like an interesting road for me, um, you know, forging a career in journalism and media. I initially started out doing accounting and I'm the daughter of Fijian Indian immigrants. Um, like my dad's a doctor, my mum studied accounting. It just felt like the right career path 
Um, for me, something safe. So initially that's what I studied. And I'd always kind of, I remember in year 10, I wanted to do work experience with Hamish and Andy on radio. Oh my God, sorry. I need to interrupt you because... I was the exact same. Um, <laughs> they had a work experience guy called Cackling, Cackling Jack. Intern Jack. Yeah, and he went on to become a producer for the show. So I emailed them in year 10, you know, thinking that I could do work experience and, you know, get a get a job on radio too. Um, 11 years later, I haven't lost hope yet. <laughs> I'm uh, still waiting a reply, but yeah, I can, I can totally, totally relate. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. I'm so glad you feel me, right? Well, actually, interesting story. So I did email Hamish and Andy's people as well. Didn't hear back. But at the time, and you might know of the radio station, um, The Edge 96.1. Yeah, um, yeah. I got finally, I've been, I'd been trying to get on air and one morning my dad was driving me to school and I got on air. They were doing like a spelling competition quiz kind of thing um, and we did really well till I think we had to spell pharmaceutical or something like that. Anyway, I still remember the word. Um, <laughs> I, I got it wrong by one letter. Shame on me because I'm a journalist now. I should know how to spell. Um, and then I asked live on air, can I get work experience oh my with God. like the with the breakfast host? Oh, good move. And it nice. was like dead air, like that, which shouldn't happen like on breakfast radio, like because they were absolutely stumped. They weren't expecting it. So well done to me. Um, and then they just put me through to like the receptionist or the producer, whoever in the phones room. And then I asked again and they were like, oh, look, we don't really take on work experience that often, but like, thanks so much. And then just as they went to hang up, I was like, hang on, do I at least get a prize for like competing in this spelling bee thing kind of thing? And they were like, no. So anyway, <laughs> moral of the story is I tried as well. So I feel your pain. We've been oh there. My gosh. But um, going back to like, I guess my interests, my interests in media were there like in high school, but then I decided to like go down the career path of something that was seen as more of a professional career, um, especially in like uh, South Asian or curry parent standards. Mm. Um, So I did accounting and then very quickly realized it just wasn't for me. And so I started my blog at the time, which um, I don't currently run anymore, but it started in 2011 and was running up until recently. It was called I Am Starstruck which very much um, described who I was at the time, which was a very celebrity and pop culture, crazy young 19-year-old who saw a gap in the market for Australian entertainment content. At the time, um, blogs were just really becoming a thing. So this was a good 10 years ago. And it was probably only the Daily Telegraph and Pop Sugar that were focusing on, you know, what dress Jennifer Hawkins was wearing on the red carpet or what your favourite Home and Away stars are doing behind the scenes when they're not filming, all of that kind of, you know, gossip. We didn't have Instagram that prominent back then. So all of those kinds of things was something that my blog was able to focus on and that's where my love for kind of covering things um, began and then eventually that blog became a bit of a beast of its own and then I did a journalism master's after accounting and then kind of started working full time. So to answer your question, the interest, I guess, was there kind of in the background, but professionally, it took um, Mm. a few stepping stones to really put that plan into fruition. You don't need to lie to us, Alicia. The real reason I started a podcast and the real reason you got into journalism was so we could finally get to do our work experience with Hamish and Andy, right? <laughs> oh, hells yeah. And I've interviewed them both, mind you, since Have then. you told them so, about this? Yeah, did you? 
Did you bring it up? Yeah, did you no, tell them? I didn't. I actually should have. So I think I've spoken to them on the red carpet briefly and then I've interviewed them separately because, you know, in the last few years, Hamish and Andy have um, pursued like very distinct like media careers of their own separately, mm. as well as like the awesomeness that they bring together as a duo. But um, no, that's a, that's a good one. I should bring that up next time. Next time you should be like, remember that intern that sent you an email 15 years ago? <laughs> that was exactly. me. <laughs> 100% will do. <laughs> yeah, but it's awesome to see that, I mean, like you had this passion at the back of your mind, which came from, you know, that keen, I guess, interest in like celebrity and pop culture. And then you were able to channel that through your blog. Have you always been interested as a writer in those kinds of topics that kind of, they almost bring people a lot of joy, right? To be listening to and and reading about celebrities and what that world is doing. And you've really seen that taken off, especially now with podcasts like Shameless. I listen to those guys and they've really taken on that sort of world um, in a really unique way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I really agree with you. I think the joy of entertainment and pop culture is almost anyone you speak to, like, watches a TV show, watches a movie, has a favourite musician. They listen to music while they're working out, right? So the field of entertainment and entertainment journalism can be so relatable, and which is what I've always loved about it, is that I know that when I talk about my work or I'm covering it, it's going to be of relatability to someone in in some way so have really really enjoyed that and I think in terms of like topics of interest for me as my career has progressed I've really matured as as a person and as a journalist as well and my interests have evolved which is really cool because you know like Mm. my mum always says it did you ever think you'd be writing about news like and I'm like no because like the 19 year old me was just so like celebrity crazy lining up for hours to meet Zac Efron at the Kids Choice Awards like far out there just thinking back to this now but um you know so anyway moral of the story is yeah my interests have really evolved and I think in more recent years um I've really taken interest in hoping to be able to use my journalism in a way that can make some kind of difference as well Um, and like, they're not like radical changes or anything, but I think like something that the three of us and perhaps many of your listeners like are really passionate about is representation, um, you know, and being the children of like South Asian immigrants, um, you know, we may have come across instances in our life, like where we have felt like we haven't been seen or felt a sense of belonging or in terms of the mainstream media, I know personally, I've struggled to see as many people that, look like me um, in the media and so being able to explore a lot of those topics through you know whether it's interviewing South Asian people in the arts and entertainment or it's Mm. about delving into you know other deeper issues that are happening in the news but with a lifestyle twist or or a lighter lens on it or it could even be you know something a bit more political Um, those are areas that I'm really glad that I've been able to delve into as the years have gone by. Yeah, and it's so important to have people in the newsrooms and the production rooms to tell those stories, right? Because, you know, we've spoken to the importance of representation and the impacts of lack of representation from a few different angles on our podcast. And, you know, to your point, it is multifaceted. So I think it's one thing to see people who look like us, but it's another thing to have journalists 
giving voice to our stories and platforming our perspectives as well. Mm. Um, and I guess the time when you were starting your career, there weren't a lot of people of colour who had opportunities to do that. Um, so when you broke into the media world, were you kind of hyper-conscious of your, I guess, South Asian-ness or ethnicness? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Um, I've always kind of been aware of that and known that there haven't been as many, like if I, if you asked me back then, like who my role models were in Australian journalism um, or people that looked like me, like I can think of like Indira Naidu, um, it, it, like there's there's not that many names that I could think of. Yeah. So going into it, I was like always very conscious of that. I remember in my early 20s, I tried to like, change the way I looked to look culturally ambiguous, you know, colour my hair, try to look mm. less Indian, thinking that, you know, might help me get a role on TV um, because that was kind of being communicated to me, whether consciously or not, that the people who are on screen are the standard at which you get on and yeah. that's what's yeah. okay to be shown yeah. to everyone else. So, like, I was aware of it in that way as well. Um, but it's been really nice, like as time's gone by, like I've realized that since working in the industry, there are actually people that are older than me who are South Asian that have been working in the industry, but I just didn't know of. Mm. And then there's also people coming afterwards as well, like within my cohort or even younger coming yeah. up the ranks. Yeah. So it's really nice to see that, you know, that progress is happening. Yeah, most definitely. And you see that as well. And I think it takes people like you and, and seeing someone like you achieve these things that allows younger people to think, oh, hey, like there is someone that looks like me. And we've mentioned this with, you know, many other people we've interviewed as well who are kind of breaking that mould because, yeah, to your point, like you kind of wanted to make yourself look a bit ethnically ambiguous because you only saw like maybe like blonde people with blue eyes on the on TV and you're like, that's not me. So does that mean I can't get through? Were you ever doubtful about your career in the media because there weren't people that look like you? Like, was there ever a point where you're like, I really don't know if I'm going to crack into this because of that lack of representation? I don't think I've really struggled too much with whether I'd crack into it as such only because I was really lucky that my blog started when it did mm. and it really hit something that a lot of people weren't covering at the time so it kind of became a little um, beast of its own it became known on Twitter publicists were reaching out to me inviting me to events oh, um, awesome. and I knew I had that passion and something to make it in but where my doubt kind of lay and even sometimes still does is whether I'm second guessed or, or I second guess myself when I put something forward or wonder if whether I'd be considered for this or not or have I been picked for this because I'm brown so mm. not so much like whether I'll make it but did someone say this to me because I'm brown or did they perhaps think oh we need to go and check with someone else first or are they sympathizing for me or that kind of thing that's probably more where my doubt has been at times but um yeah not so much but it's yeah every now and then mm. which I think a lot of us feel like whether it's in the media field or in other careers as well just like 
from speaking to some of my other friends as well. I think it's something a lot of us kind of go through because it is still a very whitewashed world that we live in. Yeah, yeah. we're all very like hyper-conscious of it. Exactly. And it's yeah. interesting because you brought up such an interesting topic of tokenism, which is something that we want to speak about. Like, I think it's a topic on its own that we need to address one day. But it's so interesting because you have those thoughts in your mind where you're like, am I just the token brown girl or do they actually take me seriously? And that's also another factor on its own where like, am I being taken seriously enough because I'm a person of colour or you know, because I belong to XYZ minority group, um, which is also such another difficult thing to navigate on top of that as well. Yeah, 100%. I guess the other layer to that is having people kind of questioning or assuming that you represent the views of everyone from the demographic that you represent Mm. as well. Do you feel a sense of responsibility as a person of colour working in journalism to be selective with the stories you write about or or maybe the way you frame certain messages because of what you do represent? Yeah, I think I do feel that at times and especially because of how prominent social media is within my job as well. I think like it's interesting because journalists back in the day didn't have social media and I actually think, I mean, it's been the best thing for me. I don't know how they forged a career without it because mine started through Twitter and my blog and all of that. But with that, there is so much going on. And especially like now at a time like this, where people are really waking up and speaking about important issues of race and representation and feminism and sexism and, and all of that. Um, and you want to make sure you're doing a good job and covering these things. And you can go on to say, like, I am a diversity advocate. Um, But things like that, if you put something out there, there can be that pressure to then always be on, Mm. on, on and to cover it all. Um, And even, like, you know, every few weeks there is a new movement or there is something that everyone is talking about and you feel that, you know, beyond even just covering it on the website or the publication you're working for, that you should have a voice and be sharing Insta stories or stories about where you can go and donate for different causes and things like that. And I've just realised, yes, that's really important to do, but I'm also just really careful and, you know, I've just told myself that surely people know if I'm not doing everything all the time, it doesn't mean I don't care but it's just like an element of self-care and you just can't be covering everything. There's like only so many hours in a day. There's only, you want to be able to do a good job and focus on what you can do um, and not try and cover everything. And the things that I'm able to cover, I do. And they've really resonated well with people, which I'm really, yeah, really grateful for. And there's obviously like always so much, you know, room for improvement or different ways you could have like tackled an issue or covered Mm. it or someone else you could have interviewed but I guess that's what makes journalism exciting because there's no necessarily a right or wrong way to do it you know it just depends on the topic and the issue and and where you are at the time and who you're working for. That's something that I think I've struggled with a little bit with our podcast as well Mm. like there's just certain topics where in my head I'm like we we have to do this justice you know we have to cover all our bases and you know shed light on all the right angles but to your point 
the reality is that there's always something else we could have considered mm. or there's always someone else with a different experience or a different understanding that we could have interviewed. So I guess it's a little bit of, um, I guess, coming to terms with the fact that we can do a topic multiple times from different angles uh, without the responsibility or your pressure of covering it all in, in one go. That's it. And like, as a journalist, like I've worked at places like Daily Mail and then Huff Post. And the way I'd cover an issue at the Mail would be completely different to the way I cover mm. it at Huff Post. And that can't be a reflection on me as a journalist. So the same way, like with your podcast, the way you'd cover an issue would be totally different to the way some political podcast would tackle issues of, of race, you know, where they mm. interview someone who's not me, like, you know, they, and so um, I think it's so important we remember that. And our audiences, I think, are like switched on enough to know that they, they're going to certain places because they want that sort of output. And if that's yeah. not what they like, they will go elsewhere. Yeah. And that's the like positive of there being heaps out there these days as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. This it's almost like this unrealistic expectation that people who are sort of out in the public, like to your point about feeling that responsibility to have to cover everything or like do it in the right angle. But it's it's so unrealistic because there is only, you know, there's one of you and you've obviously got your perspective and it's just like what Sandon said, it's near impossible to cover every single perspective about one topic. And that's where like the beauty of getting people's opinions and having that open dialogue comes through as well, because that can also inspire you to do something differently for next time. Um, I wanted to ask as well, I guess more specifically being a woman of colour um, in the Australian media landscape, what was, what has that experience been like for you? It's, I guess that intersectionality of not just being a person of colour, but also being a woman. Um. Yeah, it's been interesting. Like, I think over time, I've definitely developed a lot more confidence, um, you know, being in an environment where I think so many industries still can be quite male dominated um, and white male dominated. I guess the thing with entertainment journalism, especially like in the earlier years, was it is one area of journalism, especially in Australia, that is rather female dominated. And that comes down to a lot of stereotypes too. You know, men do sports journalism, women do entertainment. They do the fluffy celebrity stuff. They do the lifestyle. And, you know, I've worked on women's lifestyle website and all of that too. So I've felt comfortable like in those environments but then at the end of the day like most media organizations are run by white men and that comes into a whole another conversation that a lot of people in the media have been having around to create more diversity in newsrooms we need more diverse people of color in those you know higher up um boardroom ceo mm. positions um but back to my experience i guess it's just like it's been a bit of up and down because yes like I can be surrounded by lots of incredible women but then often yeah you can be like the one or two women of color in the room like I've had instances where um you know there's two of us brown girls that work in the newsroom and then out on the red carpet someone will call me her name because but it just wouldn't happen with the white girls kind of thing so things like that there was like this yeah. instance when I went to an event with one of my colleagues and um 
she was of Nigerian background, I'm Indian, and there was like a high tea for lifestyle and entertainment journalists. And we'd been there, we'd like been part of like the whole media shebang. And then there was a public section where members of the public were coming in to listen to this celebrity who'd written a book, like she was speaking. And um, the publicist, not the ones who invited me, but the ones from the Westfield just assumed me and my friend were members of the public. And like, it was just very clear that it was because we weren't looking like all the other blonde you know, gorgeous, beautiful white journalists out there. And it's those little microaggressions. It's not even like overt. And then when I'm saying, oh, I'm actually the entertainment editor at so-and-so, they're like, oh, and you could even see she was taken aback and it was so clear that she knew what assumption wow. she'd made. So there's like little things like that that have happened. But overall, like especially, um, you know, in the past year and a bit working at HuffPost and Refinery29, it's been so nice to be surrounded by other women of colour and women from mm. culturally diverse backgrounds and being able to focus on that through my journalism. So it's been really, really good. And yeah, like I think I mentioned before, there's so many of us that are um, following, like coming down that path, which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks to hear that you had to kind of put up with some of that, those uh, microaggressions and that behavior. But it's also great to hear about how you are also seeing things start to change in your industry. Um, so I guess, yeah, um, you know, looking at the positives, like what you were saying um, is always great. Um, I guess to that point, what's the, you know, as someone who's kind of been a little bit of a pioneer in this field, um, what's the best and worst piece of advice you've gotten throughout your career? pioneer thank you that's so lovely um I think like the best advice I've received is kind of just been like be you do you kind of thing mm. just kind of stick true to yourself and a few people have said this so I can't even pinpoint one person who's given me this advice it's been something that I've commonly received um I think the worst advice would be to just stay quiet and like just mm. kind of be hush hush and and let it be when things go wrong and I think like there are times when unfortunately if something's wrong you know in a workplace or there's an issue that's really out there like there are times when it might make sense to tread carefully you know or with caution mm. around an issue and deal with it in a diplomatic way um but it can be a bit disheartening to be told like, oh, keep quiet about this or you might not have a job in the media, you know, or you mm. might not get employed kind of thing. I also understand that um, and it could be a smart thing. I, I don't know. I feel like we're in an interesting time right now. This is me speaking so like honestly and frankly where I feel like as people of colour and as women of colour, maybe we do have to bite our tongue a bit, you know, at times. I think I've I've felt that as well. And I hope it comes to a stage where because there are people making decisions who have more common lived experiences um, and therefore a greater understanding of different issues, we won't feel as though we have to kind of um, take a step back and and not speak up as much. So... Yeah, like advice there in both of those and especially with the what I say is the worst advice, 
yeah, like I can see it as the worst advice, but sadly it also is a little bit practical. So um, yeah, probably not what you want to hear. It's probably not the most uplifting and, and nice thing, um, but I hope it's something that changes and we don't feel like, and I mean, it might just be me. Maybe it isn't a lot of other women of colour journalists, but I think at times I still do feel like I have to keep quiet about things just because of the way the status quo is. Yeah. No, I think that, that the way you look at it is is really unique perspective, I think. But you're not wrong in that sometimes, you know, you almost don't want to rock the boat too much because then, it, to your point, like your job could be at stake, but also like maybe, you know, people will start to kind of go, oh, she's too controversial. Like maybe we shouldn't be kind of involved with, with her. And I, I've heard other like especially women of colour kind of make those comments as well from like listening to some other podcasters and stuff too. So, and it's interesting because like your worst and best advice kind of like opposites, literally one's like be yourself, um, you know, be you, do you, and then the other's like keep quiet. So that's also an interesting um, point, I guess, that you made there too. Um, From one of, I guess from a a writing point of view, what is the the piece that you've been most proud of or what has been your favourite piece that you've written so far? You probably can't pinpoint it down to one, but if there's a couple off the top of your mind, what would you say? Um, I think one of the pieces that I've been really proud of was an article. Well, there's two. There's one that I wrote at HuffPost and then I did another one at Refinery29, which is somewhat related as well. So I'll bring it up. But um, the one at HuffPost I wrote was around culturally diverse Australians who felt the need to change their names. Um, and I'm, you could call it fortunate. My name's Alicia. It's, you know, there are a lot of Indian women I know who are called Alicia, but it also is a very Western name as well. It's not too hard to pronounce. It's spelled A-L-I-C-I-A. So the hardest I get is Alicia and really it's nothing much to complain about. Um, but I have so many, um, friends, family, friends, relatives who have names that, can often be harder to be pronounced by people or they are mocked for those names. And so when there was the whole Eddie Maguire scandal, the Mm. AFL racism report came out, Uh, one of the former AFL players, Heritia Lumumba, he was one of the players who helped instigate that investigation into racism in the AFL. He um, was in big in the headlines with Eddie and I decided to write an article kind of covering this big news event, but from a real intersectional lens and looked at how I I decided to do a bit of digging into him and his name's Heritia, but he'd kind of felt forced to change his name as a kid to Harry because, you know, he'd been mocked at school, even like one of the teachers in roll call had kind of like mocked him and called him out for his name. And so he'd felt bullied. And then he carried that name through into his football career. And then a few years later, changed it back and and claimed his name and talked about the meaning of it, the cultural meaning and the significance to him and really Mm. owned his identity. But I thought using that to kind of bounce off, I did an article like Hiruitia Lumumba, um, these seven culturally diverse Australians felt the need to change their name. And I really liked doing that article because it was so people focused. It was speaking about their experiences, what happened to them. I had their photos and they talked about why they had to change their name. And I think it's just such a common thing that happens in Australia 
for so many people, especially from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds that have those sorts of names. Mm. Um, and that piece really resonated and was really well shared. And so I'm really glad that, you know, it wasn't some groundbreaking, like exclusive or, you know, some big scoop. It was just like about something that's so common in so many people's lives, but isn't often talked about especially like in a public sphere it's like only within your Mm. friends in your whatsapp groups or maybe even so it's not talked about because it's so common and so draining and so exhausting and you kind of just like yeah just call me harry kind of thing i don't even want to correct you you know but yet it's nagging at you and it's this big part that has been eating away at you and and who you are so really proud of that piece and then when i interviewed Maitri Ramakrishnan from Never Have I Ever This Year. Um, I decided to do another piece for the Refinery29 audience, which was her talking about how she's so proud of her 20-letter name. Um, And then I interviewed two Sri Lankan-Australian women um, who also spoke about their long names and how they felt the need to change them. One of them's even gone by just one letter, like, just call me G. Um, and so it was really nice to weave those stories together. And I think that's been my most clicked refinery 29 article since I started there. So yeah, really proud of those two yarns. And you should be proud, right? Because these are things that are so important, but we don't always talk or think about, but the way you're able to speak to these bigger topics through the lens of pop culture, I think just makes it more relatable and more digestible for people who might not be fully across yeah. them um, like to the article that you were just speaking about my name is Sandan, but at work and throughout school and uni I'd introduce myself as Senthan because it was just easier to say but I'm starting to introduce myself as Sandan again because I've realized that I need to use it as an opportunity to share um, you know rather than thinking of it as just an inconvenience mm. right I'm really glad and I was about to ask you guys, you know, if you've experienced this yourself Um, and I always say like people can say Stefanovic, so why can't you say so-and-so? Yeah, yeah. so I think that's really cool that you're owning it again. That's awesome. Yeah, and I feel like even like my full name is Sri Lankan Tamil. My full name is actually meant to be pronounced Romita but no one can ever, ever say it properly. It's always Ramitha, Romitha. Like that's what I got all through <laughs> primary school and high school. And like I would correct the teachers every single time, but they still kept getting it wrong. At home though, everyone would call me like Romi or Romi. Like that was just a nickname. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go by Romi from now on. And it's just been, and I, I like the nickname. It's something my parents always called me. So it's like, it, it's okay, but it's like, no one even knows my full name anymore. Um, it's just like too far gone now that I'm just I'm just Romy, which is fine. I like the name, but um, it's just interesting. For me, Romy isn't even a nickname, right? It's just like your name. my name. Yeah. yeah, it was so funny because I was at uni with some friends, and um, someone from my high school had walked past and was like, "Romitha, oh my god, I haven't seen you in so long." And then my uni friend was like, "Who's Romitha?" I was like, "That's my, that's me. <laughs> it's my full name." And I, that's when I realize like this is just my identity now but it's just interesting and I'm sure so many people could relate to this as well um but yeah (laughs) yeah there you go I should actually start calling you Romita from now on hey but we we can talk about (laughs) that after the podcast um I guess 
that was your favorite or most proud article you've written. But what's been the top moment? Um, for me, if I was in your shoes, I'd say interviewing Hamish and Andy would have been the highlight. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you've interviewed so many incredible people. What's been the top moment for you? Oh, wow. Yeah, I've been really um, fortunate because especially going into the entertainment field first, there were a lot of famous people that I've been able to speak to. Um, yeah, obviously, like I've loved Zac Efron and I feel like Romy, like you have to agree with me, like bit of a babe. Of course, of babe course. Alert. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, like I've interviewed him three times. So um, that's been like a highlight. I interviewed um, Ashwarya Rai, the Bollywood actress, twice. Oh, my god, Which is really cool. And um, <laughs> I'd love to say, yeah, she recognised me the second time, but it was the day after. So, like, maybe not. <laughs> like, duh. Because, again, it was in Sydney. I was the only Indian journalist interviewing her. You know, she was here for, like, a watch brand. It was all, like, the white journos over here. So, obviously, again, that's why she recognised me. Um, also interviewed like former US Vice President Al Gore, which I thought wow. was really cool because, awesome. wow. you know, delving into that like political sphere. Um, and that was a few years ago when I was working at Yahoo and he was talking about um, the Inconvenient Truth sequel film that he had coming out. So, yeah. yeah, there's been some cool people. And then also like it's just been really nice. Like I think I mentioned before I've um, – evolved I think as a journalist so it hasn't even been about so much interviewing famous people to get good stories because you can get good stories just from us like you know mm. um yeah, and so exactly. some of the really nice stories have been speaking to people about what's going on in their lives mm. yeah and, and there's so many of those too I love that that's awesome if you were to say you were starstruck by anyone that you've interviewed would it be Zac Efron because I wanted to ask you that but I think you've answered it <laughs> yeah well you know what like you I yeah I remember like my heart was beating so fast and <laughs> mind you almost every chat I've done if it's been in person it doesn't matter how many red carpets you've been on I still get nervous. I really do. And I mean, red carpets have not happened for a while because of COVID. But like before then, like, yeah, it just, and it's a bit of that fake it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah. But um, <laughs> even Al Gore, like, and the fact that he is so, yeah. politicians are media trained, right? So he was so good. And he's like, yes, Alicia. Like, and when they say your name back, like they are so good at getting the <laughs> journalist under their thumb. I think I was more nervous for him than for Zac Efron mm. because, you know, with celebrities you can get a bit more loose and, and have fun, but with someone like that who's so on the ball, I was like, oh, my gosh. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So I guess looking into the future, what would you say is your dream role in journalism and media? I think it's evolving and, like, every role that I've done since the last one, I've been able to grow and cover something more that I didn't think that I'd want to do. So I know, you know, with my last role at HuffPost, that's when I really started writing news as well as entertainment and lifestyle. And then coming into this role as culture editor, it's really like picking out big themes in our cultural zeitgeist and then looking at how those are relevant to us and and explore different things that really resonate with people and even within that, I'm doing a lot of political and women's issues and rights and, and all of that kind of stuff. I am kind of excited because for the first time, I don't really have a plan. 
I don't actually know where I will go next or what I want to do. And it's kind of scary because like I should, I feel like I should know, but I don't. Um, so yeah, obviously like people ask me like, do you want to go into like TV or radio or some other element of journalism? But I really do enjoy writing and I love online. And the good thing mm. about that is still within my role, like I've been able to go on and speak, you know, on radio or on TV and commentate on issues. So I think, you know, where I want to go next, I still want it to be issues driven. I still want it to mm. have some focus on, um, you know, an intersectional lens. I want to still be talking about women of colour, people of colour, um, people that come from, yeah, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds or people living with um you know, living with a disability or people, mm. you know, facing other sorts of adversity in their lives and helping to raise um, awareness and shine a spotlight on those issues. But exactly like what form in which that'll take, where it'll be, I'm not sure. And the other thing I'm really trying to hopefully build on my own blog. So my second blog, I had forgotten to mention it earlier, but after I stopped I'm Starstruck, I started Draw Your Box. Um mm which is like a diversity focused blog where I can write about things that I don't really get to write about for work. Um, it has yep. been, if you look at it, predominantly entertainment driven as well up until now. But like you mentioned earlier, those are the things that are, you can use entertainment and that lighter stuff to kind of talk about more serious things in a way that's not mm -hmm. overwhelming or depressing um, and can still yeah. be really like, um, you know, uplifting and lightening and actually get the message across quicker and more effectively so um yeah also want to like build that on the side and for it to be kind of like a real haven for women of color in australia to go to as well yeah yeah we'll put the link to that and all the places our listeners can find your amazing work in our episode notes mm. as well oh, and hey. i know you said that you don't have a clear plan but no matter where journalism does take you we know you'll be killing it so we yeah. can't wait Oh, thank you. And yeah, really excited to see where you guys go with the podcast as well. And that's a wrap. Join us next week to hear the second half of this conversation where we get Alicia's take on some of the big issues in the modern journalism landscape. As always, don't forget to hit subscribe, leave us a rating and review and follow us on Instagram. Catch you next week. Bye.